Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Benedict Michael, who is a senior clinician, scientist fellow and consultant neurologist working at the Walton Centre in Liverpool, as well as conducting research on brain infections at Harvard Medical School. Hi Ben, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here, thanks. Excellent. Um, Today's episode, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, and in particular, COVID-19 infection and the effects it has on the nervous system. To begin with, just prior to the current pandemic, what did we previously know about how, how coronaviruses could affect the nervous system? Yeah, thanks. I mean, coronavirus has been around for an incredibly long time. Um, you know, even prior to the pandemic, they accounted for somewhere in the region of 15 to 30% of respiratory tract infections. And of course, we had the first SARS outbreak and then the MERS outbreak, both coronaviruses. Um, but in those outbreaks, there were only really a handful of case reports and small case series about different neurological complications. And they were largely cases of encephalopathy uh, or some cases of uh, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is a, an acute demyelinating condition of the central nervous system. And I think quite early into the pandemic, there were quite a lot of early reports of patients who were suffering neurological symptoms as a result of COVID-19. Um, before we talk more specifically about those effects, um, can I start by asking you about some of the practicalities of how you assess this during an evolving global pandemic? Yeah, thank you. So uh, I was involved with the Association of British Neurologists back when we had the H1N1 pandemic. And we tried to run a national surveillance study then. And it took us two years prospectively to to you know really re- recruit patients. And clearly in an evolving global pandemic, time is of the essence and we can't be waiting for uh, forever for the various ethical approvals uh, that one needs to get up and running a traditional sort of study. Um, but what we managed to do for, for COVID uh, was get actually all the UK's major professional neuroscience bodies, so not just the Association of British Neurologists, but also their paediatric counterparts, uh, the British Association of Stroke Physicians, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Neuroanesthesia and Critical Care Society, all really to come together under one umbrella organisation we called the Coroner Studies Group. And what we did was get them to host portals online where busy clinicians working on the front line in the pandemic could take just literally two to three minutes to notify us of a case they'd seen, giving us no patient identifiable detail, but telling us what the diagnoses were they were seeing and the basic demographics of the patient. This mean, meant we got a really good handle on what was happening and actually got up and running capturing cases that actually mirrored the exponential phase of the first wave of the pandemic. Okay. And um, it brings me on to my next question, which is really, what do we now understand about the different ways in which COVID-19 might affect the nervous system? Thanks. Well, I think there's two ways of answering this. The first is, what are we seeing clinically? And then the next is, well, what might the underlying disease mechanisms be? Yeah. In terms of the clinical manifestations, uh, the most common seems to be cerebrovascular events. Uh, so maybe 40 to 50% of brain complications of COVID are, are uh, cerebrovascular, with the most common being ischemic. Uh, stroke, which is unequivocally now, I think, linked with COVID-19, but also cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and cerebral haemorrhage. In the non-stroke group, and, and what we found in the in the Lancet Psychiatry paper was actually the next most common complication after stroke was an alteration in mental state. And what was really interesting to us was that these alterations were from diagnoses one would typically think of as being uh, neurological, like encephalopathy and encephalitis. 
but also diagnoses that are typically thought of as psychiatric, like psychosis and catatonia and mania. And then there's a smaller percentage which seem to have peripheral disease like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and do we understand any of the mechanisms by which uh, th- these presentations occur? So that falls down to four parts, <laughs> which I think, firstly, is direct infection of the virus in the brain, uh, which seems mercifully to be quite rare uh, in, the, in the brain substance itself, in the brain parenchyma, um, with only a handful of published cases, for example, of finding virus in cerebrospinal fluid. What seems to be much more common is what we call para-infectious or post-infectious problems. So para-infectious is when you've got the infection currently in the body, you know, typically in the lung, um, and there's some sort of immune response that, that affects the brain. Um, and a classic sort of situation here would be a, what we call the cytokine storm mm-hmm. of the early innate immune response. Um, and then there's the post-infectious phenomena, which are, as the name suggests, you, the individual has cleared the virus, but there's something about the immune response that then spills over and affects the central nervous system. And, you know, an example of this would be the development of, of a clonal expansion of B cells. So you get a, an antibody production, uh, such as the NMDA receptor antibody, which has been reported following COVID. And then the last group uh, is the group where actually the virus isn't infecting the brain. It's actually infecting the lining of blood vessels, so the endothelium, um, and then uh, disturbing uh, the endothelium and leading to clotting cascades or perhaps hemorrhage, um, which is seen in multiple organs, not just in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, for example, in a, a paper that's currently out in preprint on SSRN, but uh, we hope soon will be published, we found that um, in those people under 60 who had a stroke, they're actually more likely to have stroke-like events in other organs, so a cardiac thrombus or a pulmonary embolus, suggesting there's some sort of systemic approach happening. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, regardless of age, the, the biggest finding was actually that each conventional cardiovascular risk factor increased your risk of stroke. So although there were double the number of stroke patients in our COVID study than one would see in non-COVID years who were under the age of 60, mm-hmm. even if you look in that young group, many of them had risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, cardiovascular disease. So actually, there's potential for a huge public health intervention here mm-hmm. because if modifiable risk factors like blood pressure can be controlled, maybe we might be able to reduce the risk of the most common cause of brain disease following COVID, which is which is stroke. Okay, and um, have we have we seen a lot of uh, effects on both the central and peripheral nervous system, or is this more of a central nervous system problem? Both have been reported, but it seems predominantly to be central. Okay, and and so you, we have seen cases that would be an encephalitis, say, and we think the causative agent is the COVID nineteen. Is that something that's been reported? So there's certainly been patients who have COVID nineteen and at or around the same time would meet the diagnosis of encephalitis. Right. So they have raised white cell count in the CSF for an inflammatory-looking brain scan. But uh, it's it, some of the post-mortem studies where they've claimed to have identified uh, COVID-19 as a virus in the brain, causing sort of direct viral as opposed to a parainfectious viral encephalitis. Mm-hmm. That, that, that there's been methodological flaws in those papers which have reported virus in the brain. Okay. So uh, actually it may be rather that it's, it is this kind of immune... You know, it is encephalitis, yeah. but it's not virus in the brain. I see. Um, and then finally, people will be aware that of, uh, in the media, there's lots of reports of, of this condition called long COVID. What do you understand about that syndrome at the moment? And uh, I guess what, what remains unanswered about that? Yeah, so that's a big question. Um, the definition of long COVID is that these are symptoms after COVID that are in the community. So mm-hmm. these aren't hospitalised patients. And 
others, not myself, have been running studies looking at this. And actually, a lot of the symptoms of, of long COVID, which uh, patients self-report, such as fatigue and brain fog and headache and lethargy, actually are also present in large percentages of the population who haven't actually had the COVID infection, uh, but rather are also uh, suffering from the, the more general effects of the COVID pandemic. Um, so I think it's me mechanistically probably quite heterogeneous. What we're doing in, uh, we, I'm leading the COVID clinical neuroscience study, which is a study where we're looking at 800 patients who were hospitalised with COVID and a brain complication. And we're doing that because, of course, when they're hospitalised, we've got good information on the time they were sick. We've got blood samples and spinal fluid and brain imaging from the time they were sick, uh, acquiring their illness. But we're also following them up in the community afterwards. So trying to answer this critical question, which, of course, is, are these kind of severely affected hospitalised patients with brain complications part of a continuum with patients who are having similar brain problems but just were not unwell enough at the time of, of their illness to have been hospitalised, mm -hmm. or whether the group in the community actually, as we were hypothesised, is a kind of mechani mechanistically heterogeneous hodgepodge of, of some things we're seeing in inpatients but also uh, other pathophysiology as well. Excellent. Um, are there any things that you would say as uh, one or two sort of key messages for people listening about your experience of COVID-19 and the pandemic and um, what, what you think of as, as important take-home messages? Thanks. Um, so the first thing is now it is unequivocal that COVID can result in neurological and neuropsychiatric complications. And working with the WHO, we've produced a quite clear screening criteria. So if you're seeing a patient in the pandemic who presents without traditional symptoms of COVID, but has classical COVID neurology, actually those patients should be screened for COVID because they may have asymptomatic disease. Um, and secondly, although I, <laughs> this is something I'm studying currently, I've had many cases where the neurology has been attributed to COVID, but actually they had something else. So HSV encephalitis or a, a, a non-COVID related stroke. So it's really, really important that we don't blame everything on COVID and do look for the, the common conventional things that we, we would see. Excellent. Thanks very much for joining us today. And uh, I think that was really useful. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.